Hello, I'm David Moscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. For years, private interests have encroached upon public spaces. As time goes on, there are fewer and fewer places that belong to each of us, regardless of our socioeconomic status. Places where we can congregate or simply exist without needing to bend to the will of the market or worry about being surveilled. But what if our cities themselves were to fall to privatization? Imagine a city run, for instance, by a big tech company. Proprietary roads and sewers and sidewalks, data collection and surveillance here, there, and everywhere. The notion isn't so far-fetched. A recent struggle in Toronto over Google's attempt to pilot a smart city is a reminder that we can't take anything for granted. So, who owns the future of public spaces? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Josh O'Kane, a reporter with The Globe and Mail and author of Sideways, the city Google couldn't buy. Let's start by talking about your book, a book I, I loved, by the way, and Google's attempt to pilot a smart city in Toronto. Can, can you take us through what happened there with Sidewalk Labs? Sure. So in 2017, this sort of mysterious announcement happened where this company that no one had really heard of before called Sidewalk Labs that was somehow affiliated with Google managed to get Justin Trudeau, Kathleen Wynne, and John Tory all to roll up to this big announcement for this community they were going to build uh, on the waterfront in Toronto at the foot of Parliament Street where there were going to be sort of intersections that might be adaptive and super community-wide heating and cooling and, you know, the potential for sensors to measure things in day-to-day life uh, that we don't really measure right now that we could perhaps do something to, you know, make more efficient. The sky was really the limit. There might have even been a monorail and someday some self-driving taxis. It was, you know, sort of every, you know, physical world dream you'd imagine a tech company having they were putting up for consideration here in uh, Toronto. And uh, it was sort of presented as this utopian world uh, where they were going to use Toronto and sort of make it this world-leading tech hub. Uh, and none of that happened in the end. <laughs> Every time I hear monorail, though, I, 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 everyone of a certain age thinks the same thing. And I, I'm I, listeners are thinking it right now. If you're of a certain age, right? Monorail... You bet. I, I, mean, I would say a full 10% of the 150 people I talked to for the book brought that episode up uh, of The I Simpsons. I sold monorails to Brampton, to Burlington. To... <laughs> we could do a whole episode on that. Okay, I do. And, and yeah. if you don't get the reference, my, uh, I'll give you a hint. Go watch The Simpsons. You will not be disappointed. All right, episode well, written by Conan O'Brien, no less. One of the best, too. One yeah. of the best. Featuring Leonard yeah. Nimoy. I mean, yes. That's why I have a hard time taking that monorails seriously. It really, <laughs> they've ruined monorails for a generation of of people. <laughs> okay, let's get into what exactly set Sidewalk Labs and their approach apart from other types of development. And I want to laser in on proprietary systems because you mentioned sensors and you mentioned measuring. And I think for a lot of people, they hear some of these ideas and they think, "Oh, what what could possibly be wrong with that? We get more data." We get all these great services. It sounds great. Uh, what's different about, say, Google developing a part of Toronto waterfront compared to a run-of-the-mill development? Well, so, you know, a Google sort of company. So, you know, Sidewalk Labs was a sister company to Google sort of under the big alphabet umbrella. But they were, you know, inextricab- inextricably tied together because, you know, 
Sidewalk Labs had very little revenue and therefore was dependent on Google. Um, and, you know, a run-of-the-mill developer is going to try to build something that, you know, they're fundamentally seeking returns from the increase in value that they're adding to the property. Uh, what Sidewalk Labs wanted to do was use the Toronto, in the, particularly this neighborhood, as what they call the test bed for a bunch of new technologies um, you know, some of them we discussed earlier and some of them were, you know, maybe we'll put some sensors down and see what, you know, we can learn about a community, you know, find patterns in the way that people move about their cities. Um, and then, you know, identify problems of the granularity that may never have been attempted before and then figure out ways to solve those problems with technology, which can then be patented and then sold around the world. And then, you know, data that was collected on behalf of Torontonians could then have, you know, become this sort of extreme padding for the bottom line of one of the world's biggest already technology companies. Um, and this, you know, rips open the big debate over who benefits from the internet. The internet is this regulation-free, fundamentally, this regulation-free zone that one company in particular built, Alphabet previously Google, that Facebook then jumped upon, and those two companies basically built the entire economics of the internet. Um, and cities are very different than the internet. They are democratic places. They are messy places where everyone gets their say. That's, you know, different than a company coming in and just building in its own economy. You know, this was such a different project than a standard development because there was a potential to create a whole new segment of technology um, based on data generated by Torontonians. So I, I want to press this question of proprietary tech a little further. So one of my favorite Cory Doctorow stories is Unauthorized Bread, in which, among other dystopian bits, toasters only toast bread from a particular company, and consumers lose choice. They lose control, they lose choice. So uh, you know, in the book, you talk about the idea of proprietary systems and whether or not they might talk to each other across companies, Imagine you've got an, an Amazon city and a Google city and a Meta city, and mm -hmm. presumably you mentioned patents a minute ago. Presumably these patents are or exclusive, or at least folks want to try to dominate the market in their in their area. And so all of a sudden these these functions that we take for granted might not work across technologies. We already deal with this day to day in, in small ways. Think of of cables that don't work across mm -hmm. technologies, for example, and the battle over, for yeah. instance, a universal charging standard. Um, in what way could this uh, a sidewalk play limit the fundamentals of consumer choice in a city. So, you know, what's interesting is that sidewalk really made an effort to distance itself from the idea of proprietary sort of functionality. Um, and what they wanted to do is invite a bunch of, you know, the way they framed it was let's invite the Toronto startup sector to build a whole new sector around this. But the ways that things would have sort of, you know, the, the idea of proprietary technology would have, you know, affected this project if it were ever built, which it was not, was a lot more subtle than that. And there are two sort of major ways that I describe this in the book. Um, the first is around policy, which is that, okay, let's say you invite the whole world to come in and put technology there. One of the biggest controversies that Sidewalk Labs encountered was that they were effectively proposing policy around how data would be collected or disbursed uh, or shared and all the privacy measures around that. Canadian privacy law is not 
nearly um, as mature as what would need to be in place for a company coming in and saying, we are going to do this whole new sort of sensor-based experience in developing a city. You know, what happens when the company contracted by the government suggests to the government how it should operate? Mm -hmm. And obviously a company doing that is going to do it in such a way that it would make the most money. And so, you know, a lot of the stipulations in the policies that Sidewalk Labs were proposing were that, you know, Sidewalk would not get an upper hand in collecting or using data versus anyone else that, you know, there would have to be, you know, privacy proof that a company applying to a third party trust managing this data would have, you know, follow existing privacy laws and this and that. But there's no reason why in this trust scenario that data could be organized in such a way, again, if it were proposed by Sidewalk Labs and the government took that, uh, that you know, Sidewalk Labs wouldn't have the upper hand in merging those data sets collected mm. in a very specific way with public data sets or data sets that Alphabet had from mobile phone data, uh, and therefore having the greatest public data and the greatest power to process that data, which we know Alphabet already has, and then developing new technologies much faster than the local startup community. And so even though there were a lot of promises to you know, not have proprietary technology to work with, you know, other companies to make things as open as possible, um, not just in the technology, but in the actual data architecture, there are so many subtle ways that the company could have actually taken advantage of the situation. And it came down to the fact that they were openly at several points in, you know, this two and a half year project, straight up proposing to the governments how policy should be designed. Right. I mean, this is a... Well, I mean, we've seen this challenge across regulation. Whenever an internet bill comes up, the lobby, the tech lobby is strong. I mean, this seems like next level, basically asking the the government to write the laws in the way that they want them to be written. Uh, it's something we've seen, the, you know, in the United States over, over mm -hmm. a period of time. Uh, I want to think about data collection, proprietary technology, and the point at which a city or a city space is no longer public. Because you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, cities are democratic things. Uh, public spaces are meant to be public things. One of the worries that a lot, that I saw advocates bring up when it came to sidewalk labs was, well, we don't want to lose this city. We don't want to lose the public thing about this city. At what point does a play like this turn a public space into a private space? That's a good question. Um it's a bit of a gray area, right? I mean, you you lose a little bit here, you lose a little bit there. But I, I often think of, of sort of third places, like the mall, right? The mall's mm -hmm. a public space, but it's also not a public space. And it, mm -hmm. it, it almost seems like we have a kind of mollification of cities in, in these instances. And, and I think that's actually been a process that's been happening for decades ever since, I believe it was London that first really started blanketing, blanketing its own streets with CCTV cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, and that as, you know, broader technology matured, you know, those cameras could be networked and they can be used, you know, by law enforcement to, you know, literally chase a suspect over video uh, to trace their steps if they're, you know, but if you're chasing a suspect, what about innocent people who happen to be walking by and where do they fit into an investigation? What if they are sort of wrongfully identified um, because of, you know, any error that could be happening with, you know, the data collection, which is video recording. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen that 
sort of the public space, you know, privacy right get chipped away over and over, um, over decades. Um, and this is sort of almost the last, you know, shaking off the last of the ability to sort of maintain anonymity or privacy in public would be, you know, this sort of the blanket networking of, of many different kinds of sensors that is coming. Um, and, you know, at least in the Canadian context, we just don't have a mature enough privacy law to actually grapple with that. You know, the private sector privacy law in Canada predates MySpace. And so, you know, as a result, companies can continue to sort of quote unquote innovate in such ways that chip away at these, you know, third spaces. And, and it, it you brought up privacy earlier and it, it made me think of, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to mention 1984 because it's such a cliche, but the idea of, of a surveillance state has concerned people for a long time. And the idea now is that we've just sort of come to accept surveillance as a normal part of our lives. You mentioned London earlier. I mean, in London, it's extraordinary. But the data collection is also a form of, of surveillance, right? It doesn't mean that someone's following you around, tracking you every movement, attaching your name to it. But at, at some point, especially in, in data that can't be anonymized and disaggregated, uh, you're, you're constantly being surveilled. And, and I mean... Some of us don't love that idea, right? I mean, the the, the companies will say, well, we're going to solve problems with it. But the counterpoint is, I, maybe I don't want to be followed around and surveilled at every turn I take and every last minute of the day, right? I mean, maybe I don't want to trade that off. And that, I think, is one of the fundamental debates that Sidewalk Labs brought to Canada and, frankly, to the world is, you know, what do how do we want to design our cities and how much of this do we want to have happen? And if so, what policy should governments be putting in place to actually grapple with all that? Because, you know, as you said, the, the increasing amount of data collection, you know, there really isn't such a thing as fully anonymized data. If you can <laughs> find a piece of data and merge it with a publicly available data set, such as mobile phone location data, you know, many of these kinds of data are fully for sale to private organizations uh, through data brokers. You merge data sets, find patterns. You can reverse engineer who a person is based on two, you know, likely identifiers of, you know, attached to a, you know, a given cell phone signal at a given place. You know, Stuart A. Thompson, uh, former Globe and Mail staffer, now he's a reporter at the New York Times, you know, a few years back actually managed to reverse engineer the identity of various cell phone signals for people at Donald Trump's inauguration. Hmm. Uh, just based on, okay, well, like the singer of this band lives in New York and we track the same cell phone signal, you know, between Washington, D.C. and New York. Like, and then they went and they talked to these people who had been, you know, re-identified, even though technically their data was de-identified. Hmm. So, you know, we haven't as a society, there's no jurisdiction that has fully grappled with all of this. Um, the idea of privacy by design, you know, co-created by Ann Kavukian, who is a former Ontario Privacy Commissioner. Um is you know embedded into GDPR, um, the General Data Protection Regulation in, in the EU, which is arguably alongside California, sort of the most forward-thinking privacy regulation. You know, privacy by design. You know, you know, it puts in a lot of protections about de-identifying data if you're going to collect to strip away things that you're going to that might you know help someone to identify you. But that's not even a perfect process. That's just the most perfect process based on what we can do 
with data now. You can re-identify people, which means that privacy laws can very easily be floated. You know, not necessarily by these, you know, large organizations that are trying to monetize that. In fact, I would argue they're not, you know, the main threat here. What the the threat is, is creating openings for bad actors to take advantage of the mass scale data collection. And we have not as a society really grappled with that, particularly as we're going into our cities. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you can opt out, right? It's not like saying, well, okay, well, I don't want my data collected. And so I'm going to go assign a thing that says you can't collect my data. It's like, no, no, you can't walk on this sidewalk then. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's not a small thing. It's that okay, all of a sudden, if you want to be free of this surveillance, you just can't go to this part of town, which okay. which to me is fundamentally means that the space is no longer really public. And there are, there are grades of this, obviously, because we have speed cameras, for instance, and mm-hmm. we sort of broadly accept, okay, we're going to have speed cameras. But but by the time you scale it up, it really just means there's just nowhere to go, at least as far as like a sidewalk sensor goes, right? Yeah, and you know, what's really interesting is that in Sidewalk Labs' early days, they actually wanted to go a lot further than this. Um, like imagine, you know, logging into, you know how you log into some news websites and they say, give us your email address and we'll give you three free articles. Mm-hmm. They wanted to extend that logic to society in their earliest days and documents I found that were never supposed to be made public. Um, in, you know, they basically, one of the original proposals of Sidewalk Labs that, you know, was largely abandoned by the time they got to Toronto was they wanted to create a society that functionally had tiered access. Um, that the less data you shared about yourself um, and through sort of a central digital registry of people and things, you would get less access to services. If you were not going to put in your contact information or your credit card information or your mobile phone information, you know, maybe you did not get access to self-driving taxi bots that they were imagining in this sort of project sidewalk town in the mid 2010s. Um, or maybe you wouldn't be able to, you know, shop at certain stores because you couldn't just tap a, a given card if you didn't want to have all that information recorded. Um, so th- that logic is very much, very prominent in, you know, this sort of, you know, Silicon Valley tech elite perspective of, you know, if you, the more you share with us and therefore the more you help us get rich, uh, the greater access you're going to have to services. And, you know, at first you don't really seem to, you know, a lot of people are okay with that, but how much does that eventually chip away? at further privacy rights down the road as you know those rights gradually get eroded and these are the big debates that were happening over time here um, about the sidewalk labs community that never got built yeah it it is it's not a small thing and, and the, the example you give of giving your email address to to a, a news site which is something i do all the time <laughs> part for work uh is is a notable one though because data becomes a, f- a form of currency right and um, I, I, my internet went down the other day when I was out and about my phone and all of a sudden I realized just how reliant I was, not in the sort of, not just the sort of sense that I want to doom scroll Twitter and uh, that's sort of my brain needs that dopamine hit, but in the sort of like, oh, I've been using Apple pay all day <laughs> now and now I can't use Apple pay or okay. uh, I can't get around the city because I don't have a map or if I need to call a car. Uh, I, I can't, and there are no taxis anymore anywhere, so now I can't get a hold of a rideshare car, and the taxi industry is dying dead, so I can't get a taxi. And the city isn't really good at posting schedules for transit, so I actually don't even know when the bus is coming, and all of a sudden my world falls, falls apart. 
because uh, I don't have this this phone on me, which incidentally is also a, a tool for for surveillance that we don't really think about. We just carry around. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine told me the story of how she was at the airport and she was trying to pay with cash to get some food, but you had to use this touchscreen menu and that could only take a credit card. And so she literally could not get food at an airport because her credit card wasn't working. <laughs> and it's not like, you know, we've built a, a, such a, an apparatus that you really does require buying in to surveillance and to data sharing to have access mm-hmm. to the world. And so this, is this the next step of that then? This is the next step. Is it, well, now we're going to build it into the city infrastructure itself. Is that what the play is here? That was part of the original attention sidewalk. They did backpedal on that uh, when they, you know, as their, pro- their, their plans matured, but it still is fundamentally baked into the technological experience where we're centralizing so much that you can't necessarily access certain things. And in Sidewalk's original vision, there were so many like barriers to um, access to basic services if you weren't willing to share data, or so many dependencies on the internet always being up, as you were just pointing mm-hmm. out. Um, like if the internet is down and everything is powered by you know Wi-Fi, um, you know as we noted, you know we had a you know countrywide Rogers outage a year or two ago. Like you know, how are you supposed to on you know use your phone to unlock a door? Um, if everything is sort of based, you know, through RFID or something along those lines. And so, you know, these sort of tiered services, uh, that's really what they are. And if you can't pay for something with cash in a country where cash is still, you know, technically currency, um, that becomes an issue. But these are decisions made by private organizations. There are no mandates necessarily. Uh, You know, we just take advantage of this technology and then the technology companies we learn uh, take advantage of us with once we realize that we no longer have those services. Like as an example, I was in the United States last week doing some reporting and I switched to a digital SIM because I don't want to pay my Canadian carriers like massive roaming charges for mm-hmm. a few days. But then I realized that no one could text me. Um, so it's like if I want people to text me and then I got back and I had something like 30 or 40 texts. Some of them were from people I was trying to reach on the ground who were trying to call or text me. Um because I didn't want to pay the you know ridiculous roaming fees for my Canadian cell phone carrier, um, and so I was just like scrambling to reach everyone through WhatsApp on the time. You know, nothing got screwed up, but a lot of people were wondered where the heck I was, mm-hmm. um, and all because of you know a choice made by a private company to make roaming fees way more costly than they really need to be uh, for the sake of their bottom line, and. You know, these are choices that are affecting us now. And these choices of the sort of the deepening of the need of these technologies is only going to get deeper, I guess. Yeah. But the fragility of the technology that backs them is not necessarily getting any better. Yeah. I mean, speaking of monopolies, right? And and again, I, I want to come back to this idea that we we cities are fundamentally public spaces, um, but now they are battlegrounds for companies who who want to control them and want to control the data and the patents that come out of them. And one of the things I liked about your book, one of the nuances I think was really, really important, both for the sidewalk story and to broadly understand this moment, is that this, a lot of this is a patent play. Mm -hmm. And I think to understand the tech push right now, especially with Google, we need to understand patents. I I talked to Corey Doctorow recently, you know, Sorry for being so particular about this, but every time mm-hmm. I think of this stuff, I think of Cory Doctorow. You know, and he was saying Google sucks. 
they don't do anything. They're not very good at, at anything other than patenting and buying up other companies. It's not like they're, you know, they got search right and then they kind of got nothing else right after that. Mm -hmm. like was, and then they screwed up search. But mm -hmm. um, but they are pretty good at being big and collecting a lot of data and then buying up little companies. But the patent play seems to me to be uh, the thing that we don't focus on nearly enough because mm -hmm. um, it, it, what ends up happening, I seem, is, is we end up being guinea pigs for free for these companies who then turn around and use that experience to launch these patents and then to further monopolize the sectors that they're already dominating which seems like a raw deal to me. <laughs> listeners listeners can't tell, but I'm nodding very vigorously here on our, our video chat. Um, yeah, that is very much the play um, of most large technology companies. Figure out the innovation, patent it. You know, you either have an exclusive use for yourself or, you know, you can license it at, you know, the amount of money that you want to make a bunch of. And this is very much sort of how power gets entrenched um, by figuring things out first and fastest and companies that already have massive market power that can invest in data sets in collecting existing data and then invest in data processing are going to figure out problems and then solve those problems and then patent those solutions faster and faster. And so, you know, the flywheel of innovation that you often hear technology executives discuss as sort of making the world a better place also entrenches existing power structures mm -hmm. um, because people who have more power are able to consolidate it faster and solve problems faster. Yeah, which is, you know, which is how you end up with roaming charges that are through the roof. I mean, the state doesn't help. Of course, the government doesn't mm -hmm. help by we have one of the weakest consumer protection agencies and competition agencies in the world that sort of like don't prevent monopoly. <laughs> do the thing they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, we saw that recently with the Roger Shaw merger, for instance. Um, so we're sort of getting it from both ends. It's not a very hopeful landscape. Although Sidewalk Labs ultimately failed in Toronto. And and hey. as you write in the book, they say it was the pandemic that finally did them in, but there was more to it than that, as you know. I mean, why did Sidewalk ultimately fail in Toronto and, and where are similar efforts ongoing? You know, it's it's funny uh, in that there was so much, I think, sort of blood, sweat, and tears poured into a narrative around, you know, people chase sidewalk labs out of town, when in reality, sidewalk labs failed as a business to develop a business plan that its partner in government was willing to accept. And that came down to land. Hmm. You know, in the end, it didn't, you know, you know, the government partners of Waterfront Toronto, which is this tripartite organization that they wound up working with, um, were frustrated about data policy. They were frustrated about heavy-handedness in terms of the negotiating tactics that Sidewalk Labs used. But in the end, they only had the power to give Sidewalk Labs 12 acres and all of Sidewalk Labs' business plans uh, depended on more than that. And, you know, there was a plan released in June of 2019 where... They saw it, not necessarily ownership over, but significant powers over 190 acres of Toronto's portlands. And Waterfront Toronto kept saying over the course of the drafting of that document, we don't have the ability to just give you that land. And they kept pushing and saying, well, we're going to ask the city. And then even when it came down to negotiating the city for an additional 20 acres of that land beyond the 12 acres that Waterfront had initially promised it, 
the city was like, no, we have these things called procurement processes where we try to get value for the taxpayers we represent because that's how this side of a negotiation works with the public sector. And when that final 20 acres dropped out and when it came down to the only 12 acres Sidewalk Labs has ever promised, Sidewalk Labs couldn't make the math work and they were struggling to make the math work prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic was ultimately what made it sort of, you know, the, the, their math collapse. If they had been given more land, do you think it would have gone through? Yes. Waterfront Toronto, by the time of the pandemic, you know, I, I, I sort of hinted at this big, you know, June 2019 document. Sidewalk Labs releases 1,500-page document with all of their plans. It really read more like a catalog of ideas that they wanted to sell to many cities, um, in part because some of the, you know, some of the their ideas didn't even work within the framework of Canadian law, which they also suggested a few times that they should change Canadian law. Um, Waterfront Toronto pushes back on that after June 2019, and by October 2019, when Sidewalk Labs agrees to the 12 acres. They agree to a bunch of other terms of Waterfront. And then Waterfront is this enthusiastic partner. Right. Um, they're like on, you know, we got things back on our terms. It took two years to that point to the month. Um, but they got the project on the terms that they wanted. And if Sidewalk Labs had gotten enough land to actually, you know, scale technology and get the return that they were hoping to get for their parent company, Alphabet, um, they would have gone forward and this would have, you know, kept happening. So it's it's over in Toronto for the moment, but it's not over worldwide, right? There are other efforts ongoing to try to pioneer this smart city, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're seeing a, a few diverging approaches around the world to the sort of smart city movement. The first, I think, just in, is a blanket uh, notion is that the term smart city is almost you don't see that um that much anymore you see more people trying to envision with you know urban technology or you see really rich guys attempting big master planning projects smart city just it almost became a pejorative over the course of the sidewalk labs project sidewalks tried to ignore that title from the beginning because to them that actually represented an outdated generation of more sort of centralized planning and sort of uh, centralized organization for cities that they wanted to be more citizen focused. Hmm. So the two schools of thought that are sort of happening right now is you have sort of bottom up processes like in Barcelona where citizens can, you know, you know, vote on, you know, technology, urban technology projects, even things to do with their aqueducts and measuring, you know, water flows. And then you have the other side of the coin, which is more focused, uh, on, on by, you know, big rich guys with a lot of money to spend like Mark Laurie, uh, who I believe is the diapers.com guy. Uh, I may want to check that. Um, he wants to build a city in the desert somewhere in the United States. Uh, and Nevada very recently, um, you know, made changes to allow for, you know, minimal regulation. If someone wants to try to build some kind of futuristic city in the desert there. Um, and so maybe it'll be in Nevada, but he wants to build a city where large portions of it are governed by a trust. Um, and you know, there are some progressive ideas in there, but it's sort of, you know, fundamentally yet another example in history you know, of an extremely wealthy person trying to, you know, build society from scratch and it's not clear if it'll actually work. And then you sort of dovetail into, you know, even further into the idea of concentrated power, making these decisions. And you've got, you know, the line in Saudi Arabia, 
uh, where it's just dictated straight down from the government, you know, a government with a questionable human rights uh, uh, and, you know, who is going to be affected by the building of this and the living in this and for all the shiny big blindness of it all going from the sea to the desert, what is, you know, what is actually the benefit of society other than sort of a long tourist attraction that looks like Blade Runner? I'm so glad you mentioned Blade Runner because it seems to me we have this tendency now to take dystopian science fiction and the message we take away from it is, let's try to do that, right? It's not the the warning that we've seen from um, from H.G. Ballard on down. It's sort of like, oh, no, no, this seems like something we could probably do. I mean, in, and you see several examples of that in Sidewalks Plans over the years. Like prior to... Toronto, they wanted to put a dome over a portion of their city um, as an attempt to say, well, if you put a dome or something and it's climate controlled, they actually did think this through, uh, where it was like, oh, you don't need to have individual heating and cooling systems for buildings. You can just have one air exchanger for the entire area under the dome, which means you have, can expend less on the actual sort of structures of the buildings um, and make them lighter um, and less carbon intensive. But in the end, you know, it still involved building a dome. And they wound up abandoning this. They called the dome canopy. And one of the very last, they still clung to the idea just to prove a little bit of legacy in their uh, sort of the history of the company where they are, you know, by the end of the company, their sort of their most interesting sort of large potential scale idea was to build prefabricated portions of buildings out of wood. Um, and so that they could sort of have a prefab factory offsite and then snap these things together like Lego. Um, and they still called it Canopy was the name of the company. And so even this sort of the, the lingering history of the sci-fi dome that, it, you know, was a Simpsons movie uh, joke um, to bring things all the way back to the Simpsons again, uh, you know, was still part of the company's legacy right until its last days. How close are we to someone saying we're going to solve climate change by blocking out the sun? Uh, you know, so we're, we're talking the Matrix here at this point, because uh, we may already be getting close. Uh, I'm not sure. Because it strikes me that that maybe we're not so far away. Uh, um, you know, you wrote about the the community that warned about and pushed back against Sidewalk Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you note that it probably would have gone through anyway had the land been on the table. But have you seen successful pushback either here in Canada or around the world? You write about Berlin, for instance, in your book as an example. Yeah. I mean, are there successful resistance movements? You, it, the, the two, I think, most successful resistance movements uh, that I've studied are in Berlin and uh, against a Google startup campus there and in Queens in New York uh, against Amazon's HQ2. Um, and, you know, Amazon, I mean, it's... Frankly, you know, they split HQ2 and 2 back in 2018. They're going to half to the Washington, D.C. area and half to Queens. Even the Washington, D.C. area is not, uh, you know, I, think, I believe they've halted construction recently uh, based on the slowdown of the tech sector. So, you know, maybe this whole world was not uh, meant to have a second Amazon headquarters. But, you know, the folks in Queens, you know, really push back against Amazon there, particularly against the massive... Uh, tax benefits that uh, the company would have gotten by setting up shop there, but also the consequences for gentrification. You know, you bring in 25,000 tech workers into a neighborhood 
they're going to outbid the plumbers and the electricians uh, for you know apartment units that are nearby. And then where do those people go when they're trying to service their home communities? So there was a major pushback there, and uh, Amazon wound up leaving Queens uh, as part of its HQ2 movement. And then Berlin was the other major um, opposition movement. And I spent a lot of time there. I spent a couple summers there talking to folks who were pushing back against this startup campus, just a small little campus in this sort of former electrical substation uh, just east of the city's core there. And it was, um, you know, the, a group of digital activists and a group of anti-gentrification activists got the whole neighborhood and a good portion of the city uh, out to push back against what they saw as um, a major potential for gentrification in their case with further potential for surveillance if it were to have set up shop. Um, and, you know, it, they made such a loud racket. Eventually, a small subgroup of them occupied the campus um, and the company walked away. And, you know, those are sort of the two biggest grassroots movements that I've studied um, as part of this book. And I think we're going to see an increasing number of those push back against uh, you know, these sort of urban technology projects, especially when it's an urban technology project that's, you know, planning to go into the heart of a community because mm -hmm. the community in Toronto that Sidewalk Labs wanted to build was sort of at the foot of Parliament Street, which is sort of on the edge of the poor lands. There are a few, you know, businesses and towers nearby, but for the most part, it's not sort of this, you know, Jane Jacobs-esque walkable neighborhood uh that a lot of neighbors have lived for many many decades in and that was a bigger contrast sorry right yeah and i think that's that's important i mean i i could imagine trying to imagine a circumstance under which i'd want to be in a space like that maybe an amusement park but it's like i don't i don't want to live it day to day but i mm -hmm. I, I want to close out on whether or not we can imagine a democratized version of something like this that would be acceptable and beneficial. You you mentioned in Spain voting on particular measures. And there are things, there are spaces where that makes good sense to me. You mentioned aqueducts. I mean, I that makes very good sense in an aqueduct. <laughs> makes very good mm -hmm. sense in engineer, uh, in, mm -hmm. in highly engineered uh, low traffic areas. But I'm not so sure about a city. Is there, can we imagine a democratized iteration of this that we would accept and want and benefit from i don't like to be prescriptive because i'm a reporter and i mostly just talk to people who are prescriptive and then just hope some kind of consensus emerges the big lesson i learned i think that is most adjacent to this is that we are in a policy vacuum um at all levels of government pretty much across the world uh in terms of figuring out how we can grapple with this and if governments are supposed to be representative of the people governments need to be proactively thinking about what the issues that they're going to have to grapple with in terms of just data collection more broadly and what the sheer capabilities are and where those capabilities are going and develop policy to protect citizens in a proactive way before companies come in and then just do everything uh, on their own. So is there a real risk then of a sort of uberfication of, of cities in the way that, you know, we're going to have a company that just comes in and does it. And by the time government realizes what's going on, it's, it's too late. That's a pretty prescient example, um, because you're looking at what industry could be disrupted next, or perhaps what area of life and that begs for forgiveness afterwards. Well, God help us all. That brings us to time. I, I could talk about this all day. I have so many more questions and thoughts, but 
one crisis at a time. Thank you so much for joining me. This was absolutely fantastic. I appreciate it so much. Well, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it. And the book, by the way, uh, which again, highly, highly, highly recommend is Sideways. It's such a good read. Well, you know what makes it good is it's a nonfiction book that reads like a story, which is how you know it's good. Uh, you'll, you'll learn a ton. Absolutely go pick it up. But that's it. So my thanks to, to Josh O'Kane for joining, as well as uh, always, Carolyn Smith, Rosh Clark, Aisha Jara, who make the show not just possible, but so, so, so much better than it would be without them. And of course, to you for listening. And we'll see you back here in two weeks. Bye.